Welcome to the Gore and More Podcast with your host TJ Bowser, Chad Chrisman, and Big Johnny D. We have such sights to tell you. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Gore More Podcast. This is your host with the most, TJ Bowser, and joining me today is Antonio Pantoja from One Must Fall. Yeah, I'm here still. <laughs> you were supposed to introduce oh. yourself, say hi. Oh, just oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you were just going to keep on rolling on. My bad, dude. I'm so sorry, man. <laughs> keep this in. <laughs> Hola. <laughs> so how are you doing today, man? Better than I deserve, you know. <laughs> it's super excited to be on your podcast, so thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It uh, means a lot. So before we get into your interview, we will have a quick message from our sponsors, and then we will get right back into the show, okay? Perfect. Take your time. The Gore and More Podcast is brought to you in part by... If you cosplay, collect, or just want to buy something cool, then check out A New Kind of Fear Customs. They sell Friday the 13th-inspired products such as hockey masks, latex masks, custom gaming controllers, and figures. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at newkindoffear.com. The iconic 80s slasher villain Jason Voorhees lives on in photography brought to you by 13 Gallows Lane. It's the home of Friday the 13th Blood and Gore cosplay photography. You can find them on Facebook at Gallows Goes to Hell, Instagram and Twitter at 13 Gallows Lane, and on Patreon at Emily Helene. Warning, Patreon content is not safe for work. Hey there, groovy guys and gals. Do you like spooky shit and horror movies? Then come on down to Cabin 13. Check out their selection of horror-themed props, pins, busts, collectibles, and more. Be sure to check Cabin 13 out on Facebook and Instagram. Get your ass over to Cabin 13 and buy something now! And we are back to the interview. So, first question. What made you want to pursue filmmaking? So, uh, my dad passed away in 2009, and um, I had like two seconds of video of him before he passed away. So I watched it, you know, a million times. And then, uh, and then my daughter used to ask me all the time if I would tell her stories about my dad because he came here as an immigrant from Peru. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, baby, I think I told you all of them. And I thought it would be really amazing <clears throat> if I would able to get a camera and start filming people who were terminal or too old and they could tell stories about themselves to their unborn grandchildren so that people would know them, you know, long after they passed. And I just kind of realized that, you know, you live on forever through video and your story makes you immortal, you know, if, uh, if once you're captured on video. So, uh, so I just, I, I began to do that. And then I started wanting to tell stories and got into that kind of thing. And, um, and then it just kind of progressed from there. Excellent answer. Uh, how did you come up with the idea for one must fall? Um, so it's <clears throat> a couple different reasons. So I think budget restrictions make you super creative. So whenever you have all the money in the world, um, it's really difficult to just write about anything. But if you know, you have access to maybe like your grandmother's diner, or something and like a samurai sword, you're probably going to come up with a really cool, super inventive, imaginative idea. So with one must fall, you know, I didn't have very much money, but I knew I wanted to do a slasher film. And uh, traditionally with slasher films, um, you know, they, they don't have technology. And I think that's what makes them great. So I, I wanted to get rid of technology and I ended up having to make an 80s film to do that. Because I didn't want to be like, uh, oh, my cell phone doesn't work in this area. Uh, no one can help me now. So. Um, <laughs> So I basically uh, I went the hard route and uh, and I made it an 80s film, but not because nostalgia is popular, but because I had to remove technology from the film. So 
Um, so budget kind of led me in that direction. And then I thought like, you know, uh, the wardrobe for an eighties film is going to exceed the budget alone. So how am I going to be able to pull this off? So, uh, so I was like, well, what is something that's universally worn, you know, over a long history of time. And it was hazmat suits, I came across hazmat suits. And I'm like, what do people do who wear hazmat suits? They clean up crime scenes. And then that kind of from one thing led to another. And then I thought, well, what if the killer never left the scene of a crime? That would be extremely interesting. So that's what the movie's about. Awesome. So what was the writing process like for the film? So uh, um, I'm really weird when I write. So um, so my wife had, had I, I can't be around people or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I act all of the scenes out as if I'm the characters, <laughs> because essentially I am all of the characters. So I stand up and act it out and everything. And my wife took uh, the kids to Florida on vacation. And then I stayed home and then I had one week to write the film and she allowed me that opportunity. And, and I did, I wrote the film, the first draft within the first week. And, uh, and yeah, so like the next time I do this, my film, my new film is about like being alone in the woods quite a bit. So I'm going to go to, um, the Gatlinburg, Tennessee, uh, in remote location and go completely off grid. And I'm going to write the film and I'm going to go every night with a, just a flashlight in my pocket, but I'm not going to use it unless I have to, you know, um, and that way I can write the film as if I were scared in the woods because I will be. So, um, so, you know, I have a really strange writing process, but I just try to get myself in the character's mind as much as possible. Awesome. And we'll talk about more of uh, that film later. Uh, what were you looking for when uh, location scouting for the film? Honestly, like the location kind of, um, it kind of like uh, helped me write the film in the first place because I went there. It was a friend of mine named Lindsay Mormon, who also was like a art director on the film. She took me to this place called Paint Factory Studios. It's massive warehouse that like if you killed someone in there and the police were looking for you, you could hide out for long as you needed to. <laughs> so I went there and walked around this place and, uh, you know, like, I don't know, for a couple hours or something like that. And it was very scary. It's just chilling the place in it, itself. And, and I wrote uh, everything down that I was seeing that I think that I could use in the movie. And it's funny because there was like a bed there that was like old bed with just box springs and just nasty, you know? And I wrote that into the film. And when we got there to shoot, that bed was gone. <laughs> but uh, what's funny about like the film gods and the way that they work is that like uh, my art department, Lindsay Mormon and Michael Book, Haiti Rogers, they made something even better. Like it, this, this scene was supposed to take place under a bed, but it ended up taking place under some stairs. And it was so much more effective because of that. And I think, you know, the film gods have some funny ways of working sometimes. Awesome. Uh, can you tell me the casting process? What was that like? And what were you looking for with specific characters? Yeah, that's that's a really, really great point. So or the really great question, uh, a really great, great question. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, so basically, a, a really close friend of mine, John Wells, he's an amazing actor as well. He helped me a lot through this process, but I was very new to it. So. I pretty much gave everybody like seven minute monologues, <laughs> which is probably not the right thing to do for um, for the casting process. But I watched every single one of them front to back. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we got over a thousand, um, a thousand auditions, video auditions. We did it all online. And I really just I had something in mind for the characters, like when I acted them out. But I really wanted somebody to show me something that I wasn't seeing because, you know, from my pen to their mouth, they are really the ones who are the characters. So. When they get the material, you know, sometimes they they see it in a completely different way than I did. So, for example, like the killer, Barry Piacente, he was amazing. 
I didn't write this killer with an accent. I did not write him ethnic whatsoever, anything like that. I had no like, you know, I, I didn't have any physical thing in mind what he was going to be like. But Barry thought that it would be best if he does like an accent for the killer, like a Russian or Spanish or I don't even know what kind of accent. But it's amazing and it's even more chilling. And that's a way that I never saw this character. So um, so that's the way that we we ended up casting it because it was just it blew us away. But, you know, I, I never write anything with like a, like physical uh, characteristics in mind, mm-hmm. like any specific person. Um, so I just want to leave it open to anybody who would play that role well. Uh, you know, despite like race or gender or anything like that. So, but we pretty much leave it really, really open. But, um, but I wasn't looking for anything specific. I just wanted to be blown away. And, and the ones that submitted, I mean, there were so many good ones, but, uh, but the ones that we picked, I think were right for the role. You know, even if they weren't like, sometimes they might not even be like the, the best actor in the whole world, but they just might not be right for that specific role, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I can't stress that enough because I think a lot of actors, um, they're devastated when they don't get specific roles, but sometimes they're they might even be better actors, but they're just not right for it, you know. Absolutely. Uh, there are many different kills in the film. What are some inspirations behind them? Oh, that's a great question. So <clears throat> I love uh, I love eighties slasher cinema, obviously, <laughs> but I also love uh, foreign films. Uh, foreign horror uh, is huge for me. So I love like I saw the devil, the Korean revenge film, and. High Tension, uh, the Alexander Aja French film, and Inside, um, Maniac, obviously, and then uh, oh, yeah. and even like the um, the remake of Maniac was, in my opinion, that Alexander Aja wrote was a masterpiece. But there's just so many films. Um, that, I mean, everything, you know. And what's funny is like uh, I love Alexander Aja, my favorite director. But I heard him on a podcast. He was on Adam Green's podcast, or whatever, uh, the Movie Crypt. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, they were like, you, you do so great with remakes, you know? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love doing remakes. You know, it's, I love doing like fanfare and stuff like that. And he goes, high tension was a remake. And Adam Green's like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, high tension was a remake. And they're like, no, it wasn't. And he goes, yeah, man, it's a remake of everything that I've ever seen growing up. You know, it's, you can find inspirations from all the films that I watched growing up in that film. And I thought that was so beautiful, man. And uh, it was so cool because I love high tension, but mm-hmm. I can totally see um, where, you know, he could think it was a remake. What made you decide to go with practical effects? And can you talk about some of the effects in the film? Oh man, that's a great question too. So practical effects were very important to me. Um, I do not like CG effects at all personally, (laughs) but, um, I have seen them done very, very well, but I have never, they have never sat right with me ever. I don't, I just don't know what it is, but, and sometimes Sometimes they're so good that like they trick me and I'm like, oh, I thought that was practical. That's great. Or if it's a healthy mixture of both, I think that's great. Uh, I still think Jurassic Park looks better than Jurassic World personally. Yes. But uh, <laughs> but I think that um, practical effects are important for like 80s cinema. So um, I got Vincent Guastini on board and uh, he's a legend in the industry. He's done like, you know, Stephen King's Thinner and Last of the Mohicans and Requiem for a Dream. He did Ellen Bernstein's arm and stuff. Or I mean, J- Jared Leto's arm and Ellen Bernstein's neck taking of Deborah Logan. He's done all these amazing effects. So um, for him to do a slasher and just to be so kind to do that in the first place, because dude, like it's a low budget film, but he was, he was just super, super cool and super accommodating. He just really liked me. So he was willing to do it, but um, dude, I'll be forever in his debt. Like I'll never fully be able to repay him, but we got some pretty cool gags in it. Um, There is a face that gets ripped off in the film. And uh, it's almost like a tip of the hat for me for uh, the film Martyrs, the French film that I absolutely love. It's 
an extreme film, but not a lot of people can get through it. But, um, but you know, like I saw, like, uh, they, they scan a person in that film and I, I just, I had to like sit up, like I don't get queasy very often, but like I had to like sit up from a laying position because it really got to me. And, and I just kind of wanted to incorporate something similar into my work, um, that, you know, I could make my own. And I had never seen that done before, really. So, um, so we we do have like a face degloving, and then there's a bunch of you know like uh, I just try to do it as creatively as humanly possible, but still staying true to uh, to the genre. Awesome. Uh, the choice of lighting and color grading gives the film a very very unique look. What exactly influenced that? Well, thank you so much. Um, it was uh, mostly I saw the devil. So <clears throat> there's a, a Korean revenge film called I Saw the Devil. It's amazing that not a lot of people have seen. But the cinematography in it, it makes you feel this really weird comic book. Um, I don't know, just this. It, you can tell that there's artificial lights there, but you feel like you're in a comic book, so it's okay. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, but so many times I see like uh, like gelled lights and stuff like that, blues and greens and purples and yellows introduced to the film. Um, I feel like it calls so much attention to that that it just doesn't feel like I'm part of that world anymore. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to make One Must Fall feel like that you're part of this like two-part series comic book where um, there's this comedic world. It's the, the, the real world that we look at sexual harassment as comedy where we shouldn't. And then there's this other world that's a parallel. It's, a, it's almost like a comic book that, um, that you know, like there's the, the, you know, the killer has his own world. So we wanted to make a clear differentiator there. Awesome. Uh- how did Lloyd Kaufman get involved and what was it like working with him? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So I've been a fan of Lloyd Kaufman since I've been a kid. So Toxic Crusaders was, uh, I had a Toxic Crusaders birthday party and I had all the toys and I saw Toxic Avenger. I think it might've been one of my first horror movies that I had ever seen. And uh, I related to Toxic Crusaders a lot because um, I was pretty much raised by the television in a broken home. And, uh, and it's about like a nerdy guy who, develop superpowers and he's able to save people and stuff like that. And, and I think that like, that's why so many of us horror fans love toxic Avenger is because we're that like nerdy guy who was ignored. And we think it's cool that there was a superhero that was created out of that. So, um, so I just think that, you know, toxic Avenger is amazing. It was a huge influence on me and I reached out to Lloyd and he called me and I never thought that anything like this would be possible, but here's how cool Lloyd is. I, I told him I want to do my first feature. And I was like, I want to do a trauma film. And he's like, you're much better than trauma. You don't, you don't want to do a trauma film. You know, you know how he is. And I love trauma. And he's like, no, um, you know, you, you, you could, you do something much better than that. And I was scared. So for a couple of years it passed and he's like, when are you going to do that movie? And I was like, man, I'm really scared. He's like, it's just your first feature. He's like, you're treating it like this big dragon that you have to slay, but just know that it's just your first feature. And I said, yeah, man, that's why I'm so scared. It's my first feature. And he goes, yeah, man, but it's not your last feature. It's your first one. He's like, so you need to go ahead and do it because you're going to do another one and another one after that. And he said, I'll tell you what, you do that movie and I'll be in it. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I'll be in your movie if you do it. So I had to do the movie then. <laughs> and uh, working with him is amazing because Lloyd is a very close friend now. Um, he just, he treats everybody the same. And he treats everybody with kindness. And he's the most generous person that you'll ever meet in your entire life. And uh, just, to know him as a gift. And I just wish I met him when I was much younger because he's a huge inspiration. He's a beautiful person. Awesome. Uh, is there anything you wish you could have done differently with the film? Yeah. So like we shot the film in 10 days. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we did it on a very tight budget, obviously, but, um, 
but the film was shot in like just 10 days. So it's really hard to shoot a film in 10 days. So we did it 10 days straight. <clears throat> so if I could do anything, had the same amount of money, uh, I would just give some breakage. I would give like, I would stagger the days just a little bit. So I was on set like 16, 17, 18 hours a day. However, I would never put my cast through that or crew. I staggered their arrival times, but um, it, it's necessary to, to get a film done in 10 days. You have to do all those things. So I pretty much shot like all the, the core things that I had to shoot um, at that time. So like I shot all of the core elements with all the core cast. And then outside of that, if I had to do any pickup shots or shots of like drone shots and stuff like that. I pretty much just did that um, on my own time. But like, I mean, there, I pretty much got it all in the case, 10 days. But if I had to change anything, I would give those guys a break, just like a couple days. Like I, I will do it. And I probably was worthless for the last few days, but I don't expect anybody else to do that. And I, I shouldn't put somebody through that. I think that was completely unfair of me. But, um, but if I had to redo it, I would give a break. What are some of the conventions and festivals the film has been shown at? <clears throat> oh, well, we've, we've played so many. Um, I think we have 54 laurels now, which is, um, I'm so proud of, but, um, we're about like a third through our festival tenure right now. Uh -huh. We world premiered at horror hound in Cincinnati, which has like 40,000 people. It's insane. Beautiful. It's, it's just like, it's the coolest convention ever. And the craft uh, cast was there and like scream cast. And I mean, just so many like I iconic people that like I've grown up loving, you know, and idolizing stuff like that were there. So it was a huge honor to show it there. But then we played at um, Crimson Screen Festival just a couple weeks weeks ago, and that's in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And it's it's just such a good festival. I think they have like 140 people that come out, but it sells out within like a week. And like George Romero's manager had a film in there. And like this guy, John Hale, who, who made, made a film called The Conduit. It's like killing it. And the festival circuit was there. Michelle Iantuanu, like people who I idolize were there. So I think the coolest part about the festival circuit is that like, you can meet all these people face to face. Like, uh, there's a guy named, uh, Jason Zink who made straight edge Kager, freaking awesome film. He was there and showed his film and like, I got to meet him and like, he's awesome, you know? And, uh, I don't just, that stuff is so cool. And like having the opportunity to play in Japan last weekend was like, I mean, dude, that's insane. Like, I can't believe that. Uh, so I, I'm a guy who used to be homeless and I have an eighth grade education. So for me to be even like speaking to someone like you right now, to me is it blows my mind that like I'm in this situation, but I can't believe it's my reality that every weekend we're playing another festival and some of them are overseas. And I just think it's, it's the coolest thing in the whole world. And I love the festival circuit. That's awesome. That's, that's really, really cool. What are some other projects you have worked on or are currently working on? So to refer to your story from earlier about your writing process, let's, let's hear more about that stuff. Oh, sweet. Okay. So, um, I've done a ton of stuff, man. Like, um, I, there was a time where I pretty much would have shot anything. Like I would beg people to let me point my camera at them and stuff, but I do a bunch of photography stuff and, um, it's very different photography. So like when I tell people that they're like, Oh, okay, cool. You're a photographer then. But when they see my stuff, they're like, Oh wow, this is very different. I've never seen anything quite like this. So a, a lot of that stuff exists in the world that I've done. Um, and then I've done short films and stuff like that. And, uh, and I'm working on my new features. So my new feature is about, um, it's, it's basically, uh, like a love letter to the films that I grew up loving on the eighties, which were like, um, labyrinth and little monsters and drop dead Fred and, uh, films like that where, um, you're watching them and you don't really realize that you're learning something, but they have a valuable lesson to teach. So, 
Um, and I kind of miss that in film. And I try to do that with One Must Fall and break stereotypes as well. But I think with this new film, um, I just have a big lesson that I would like to teach. And it's about a girl who's um, she's lost her family in a car accident. And uh, and she's 11 years old and, and she has to go into foster care. So she survived the accident, but she has, has no more use of her legs. And uh, the foster care system is really uh, can be bad. So she's in a, a situation where she is uh, abused by her foster parents. And then she goes to school and um, she is uh, bullied by kids in school because of how she looks. So um, and this is just a hypothetical world, of course. But um, so basically she wishes for a monster to come and exact revenge on her enemies. And it does. And she confides in the monster and things like that. So I think that 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 dynamic is just going to be so beautiful of like a, a child that confides in a monster when it should be completely the opposite way around. And I had never seen a film like that before. And that, um, you know, that kind of explored those, those topics and stuff like hardcore bullying and uh, bad foster care and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that, um, that's how traditionally foster care is that it's bad because it has to exist and it has to be great. And I'm so thankful for it, but I would like to show the bad side of that. And honestly, uh, it's, it's, the movie is almost a memoir uh, based on like my childhood. Wow. That's powerful stuff. And thank you. <laughs> I hope it's good. I hope I don't let you guys down, but Oh yeah. The, 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 the coolest part about the movie. So, um, well maybe for right now, at least it is until it gets made. But, um, but I contacted Sonny Garrisomowich. Um, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he did where the wild things are. Okay. And, uh, he created the characters for that. And I grew up reading those books and I'm a huge fan of the movie and I love puppets like in general. So like, I like practical effects a lot. Uh, I hate CG. So like the new, um, the new, where the wild things are, it's not new anymore, but it's all puppets. So like there's, there is CG on the mouth and the eyes, mm -hmm. but it's all in a single man operated puppet. And Sonny Garrison, which is actually in the movie. And, uh, and he's already given me some like amazing sketches on where we're going with this character and stuff. And, uh, and I'm really, really, really excited. I knew the monster was going to be important. So like, if I screw up the monster, then the movie cannot be good. There's just no way. So I reached out to Sonny Gears on which I'm like, there's no way that you would work with me in your entire life. But, um, <laughs> if you would give me the chance and, uh, like the last movie that he worked on was her and it like was up for an Academy award, uh, for his art direction. So the guy is just a, a genius and, uh, to have him to even speak to him is to me, like, I, I can't believe that's real. But uh, but he's the coolest guy in the whole world. That's that's really cool. But uh, that no, that's all the questions we have for you today. Thank you for coming on the Goremore podcast, dude. It's a huge honor. I'm so thankful. And um, and if you guys need anything anytime, I'm always happy to help. And my inbox is always open. Text me, call me, smoke signal. If anybody were to ever need help in their filmmaking journey, um, yeah, I, I I love to be able to give that gift and help as well. Okay, well, uh, we'll definitely talk talk about that post show, and uh, for all you listeners out there, check out One Must Fall. When will that be dropping? Um, right now, we're just on the festival circuit until we get like a distribution, so like wide VOD distribution or something, or theatrical or whatever they would like to do with it. But right now, we're in a very good place for life, like as far as me. Horror is not in a good place right now to this year. So uh, it's coming at a really good time. So I'm hoping like it finds a home at like Shudder or something like that. But we need some good horror, man. And uh, this year has not been a good one for us. Awesome. So also just a friendly reminder that the Gormore podcast is part of the Dubak Discussion Podcast Network featuring great podcasts such as Rabbit Hole Podcast featuring 
yours truly, and Mick Strawn, where each week we venture down the proverbial rabbit hole about some random-ass topic. Also, the Hall of Heroes podcast, which is your official comic book podcast. Also, the Do Back Discussion podcast, your source for Star Wars news, theories, and reviews. And the Jerk the Curtain podcast, your premier wrestling podcast, a true rush of madness and mania. You can catch those all on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and DoBackDiscussion.net. Also, visit our Tee Public store, search Dubac Discussion, and find all of our awesome t-shirts, including the bloody VHS tape design and the DDN Trinity design. But, as always, that's just your host, TJ Bowser, signing off. So clear.